we talked about that and like being grounded when you're alone in your house and you're doing your practice and the music's on and the heat is the right, you know, temperature and all those things. But like that, that is the, the practice. The practice is how are we using these tools and how are we finding that connection amidst all the madness that is life that, you know, that is the ups and downs and the temporality of it all. I don't like to argue, so I say nothing and fume for days. How do I set boundaries without sounding like a jerk? I hate the idea that I might accidentally offend somebody, so sometimes I'd just rather say nothing at all. Welcome to the Language Alchemy Podcast, and thank you for joining me today. This is your host, Alejandra Siroca, a transformative communication teacher and coach. I am devoted to helping multicultural individuals and couples on the path of transformation transform their lives and relationships through conscious communication. Today, I have a special episode for you because I'm interviewing Sarah Esrin, an author, a yoga educator, a freelance writer, a content creator, and a mother. At this time, when honest self-awareness is so important, Sarah's voice needs to be heard because Sarah writes extensively on the subjects of yoga, parenting, mental health, often interweaving, integrating them. And she's also outspoken about women's and parenting rights. And if that were not impressive enough, she has a book coming out, her debut book, The Yoga of Parenting, 10 Yoga-Based Practices to Help You Stay Grounded, Connect with Your Kids, and Be Kind to Yourself. And that will release this summer very soon. So welcome to the Language Alchemy podcast, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alejandra. I'm so grateful to be connected to you. I love that we live blocks away from each other. And I'm I'm just so grateful for all that you offer to all relationships, whether it's parenting or romantic and friendship. It's really an important conversation to have, no pun intended. Yes. Thank you so much. And in full disclosure to all of you who are listening, Sarah and I discovered through the process of <laughs> working together to put this podcast episode for you that we're neighbors. We didn't know, but we actually live what, like three minutes away from each other, something like that. (laughs) Yeah. The next neighborhood over. That's amazing. (laughs) Yes. So Sarah, I so appreciate how you talk about your experience of parenting and your deep aspiration to parent consciously. Not only when things are easy and enjoyable and lovely, I want to know, first of all, what does conscious parenting mean to you? So the term conscious parenting is credited to the amazing Dr. Shafali Tsabari. Um, She wrote the book, The Conscious Parent, and most recently, The Parenting Map. So I'm not sure if it was really like a mainstream term before her. But it was this idea that we can show up with intention, we can show up with presence and awareness, 
and bring those qualities into our parenting. It seems now, and especially for you and I who are in the wellness world, that almost seems like, oh, but that's what you do. This is how we show up. I mean, you know, you teach about conscious relationships and the importance of language within that. Any kind of conscious relationship is, you know, showing up presently with awareness and making connection the utmost important. Yes. I also think of any conscious relationship as being aware of how we're relating. What are we bringing to that? And what are we not bringing? How are we showing up? How are we not showing up? In your experience, what are some things that you try to be aware of or how you try to show up with your kids as a spiritual practitioner, a yogini, as someone who's on the path of transformation? What is that like for you? Well, I wish I could tell you that it was all like patchouli and, you know, grounding. The reality is, is that I came to yoga because I am a highly anxious person. I'm fast moving. I have a ton of energy. I am just generally scattered. That That is my makeup. And there's many reasons for that, right? Some people could blame my sun sign or, you know, Ayurvedically speaking, but that quality comes into my parenting too. So I, I get splintered a lot. And especially because I love my job. I love working in wellness. I love teaching yoga. I love writing. And I love my family. And I find that my brain is many places at once. And so my big work with conscious parenting is grounding in the moment and using all of my tools to ground me in the moment because, you know, it's, and I like, I can do a good job of it in short spurts. And I think that just perhaps is the human mind. But I'll be honest, there's many times where I'm spending time with my son and I'm like planning something career-wise or I'm working on something for work and I'm thinking about my sons. You know, that really is my cutting edge is how can I plant my feet on the floor? Like I know we're not on video, but I like literally like stomp on the ground, get barefoot, feel what's below start to tune into my breath so that I am plugged into the moment and plugged into them in the deepest way. I'm having this image of you really planting your feet on the earth and taking a breath. And as you say in the subtitle of your book, staying grounded. What are some things that you do to stay grounded. So let's say that you are with your son and you realize, ah, I'm planning and thinking about something else. I really want to be here with him. I'm playing with him or we're taking a walk. What are some of the tools that you have that work for you? Well, I think the first thing that's really important is you're aware, right? So the fact that I am aware in that moment where in the earlier years and my teens and my early twenties, when my self-talk was a lot more abusive, I would have been like, you know, great job. Like it would have been much more punitive, right? And I meant that very sarcastically. (laughs) You know, it's like, how dare you miss this time? What's wrong with you? These days, I'm really proud of myself in those moments. I'm like, okay, you're back here. It's almost like I always have this image of like my soul leaving my body, right? I'm like jumping ahead into all these other things. And I feel myself coming almost like that ghost, that specter version (laughs) comes back into myself. And that's the first thing. You caught it. Let's be here now. And then the next tool that I use is generally touch, some kind of touch. And whether it's like we talked about my feet on the floor or touching them in some way, 
that can be incredibly powerful. Like even I just like squeeze their little feet that I was thinking the other day, I was just completely, I don't even know where my brain was. We were out getting juice and then I was putting him physically into his car seat, my eldest toddler. And so really being present with like how I picked him up, how I put him down, pressing on his thigh bones, like almost like the same physical adjustments I would give a student, you know, were they at a yoga pose, but this is him in a car seat, you know, and that can be very like grounding him to ground myself. Those can be really powerful. Yeah. What I'm getting there is a lot of connection and the beauty of becoming aware of, I am not present right now. And then I want to be present and finding that touch and bringing yourself back into connection and then into connection with him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, but the other thing that I wanted to mention earlier was the idea of connection and disconnection. And you've talked about this on your podcast too, because what I want to make sure that we don't try to portray, and I think sometimes the the mother, the doting mother, as it is portrayed in many cultures, I think the US, it's particularly rampant and challenging for the mother figure or the primary caregiver, is that it's okay to disconnect once in a while, that we are in the seasons of our lives as you know, we call it like the householder stage in the yoga tradition, where you have to work, you have to generate in order to support the family. So it's a matter of the awareness of, okay, I'm disconnecting now, I'm going to go over here and work on this. And then I'm going to reconnect into this. And I think connection really is the key. And it's the choosing of where your attention is going in those moments. That's right. And it's like having that consciousness. All right, now I'm connecting with you. This is our time together. Now I'm connecting with this other part of life, which is this stage of life where I'm in. And this is part of what life is asking me to do as well. Mm. It's not one or the other. It's one and the other. And then discerning when you're choosing one or when you're you're choosing to be with your child. It reminds me of I work a lot with Caroline Griswold, my dear friend. We have taught together many, many workshops on conscious parenting and conscious relating to children. And she talks about Berber and this idea that we're going to be connected to our children 100% of the time is not accurate. We actually are going to connect to our children, even if it's 10% of the time that complete connection with them when we're connecting is much more important than trying to be connected with them 100% of the time, which is not possible because we have other things to take care of. Even our bodies, we have to go to the bathroom, take a shower, feed ourselves. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Magda Gerber is amazing. She founded the Rye approach to parenting and child education, as you said, which is all about giving kids autonomy. But there's also a, I think it's Donald Winnicott. You can always feel the good enough mother. uh, The good enough. Yeah. The good enough parent, the good enough mother, which then became the good enough parent, which is, you know, similar. It's talking about the amount of time and how we need to show up because I think so many of us, especially those of us that are a little more A-type, fast-moving perfectionists, we assume... (laughs) Every interaction has to be perfect and attuned and it's just impossible. So it's it's really remembering the quality over the quantity. And there's the research and this is, you know, this has been around for some time that showing up 
60% of the time fully is, is going to be way more beneficial than, as you said, you know, and I can't remember what the numbers are, but I think there's like a percentage in there too of how attuned you should be because you can be a little too attuned too, right? Like I definitely have family members that are like a little too attuned. <laughs> like, okay. You know. Absolutely. Yes. And, and what freedom. You. No, that's, I, I just, you know, even just saying that I, it's like, oh, it feels like a weight off my back of having to be perfect all the time and having to be constantly tuned in. And I think something that came up too is that when we allow for those disconnections, when we give space for someone an autonomy for them to be their own person, they they learn more about their own boundaries and you know who they are too. So I think it's so beneficial to all parties. You're reminding me that something usually says every healthy relationship needs healthy boundaries. And our children need our healthy boundaries as well. When we are establishing boundaries with our children, they are learning how to establish boundaries later in their relationships with others as they grow. I do believe that it's a fundamental aspect of this idea that we're going to be perfect all the time, or because we're a spiritual practitioner, we're a yoga practitioner, we are on the path of transformation that we're going to be perfect in every relationship all the time does not exist for us human beings <laughs> in a human body. Yeah. And thank goodness, right? Because like, how boring would that be? <laughs> like, if it was just the same thing all the time, contentment is a wonderful, wonderful quality. We talk about Samtosha and, and the importance of it. And obviously it's lovely to be in that equanimous state, but we need discord to bring us even closer in a lot of ways, you know? So yeah, it's really embracing all of the ebb and the flow, the disconnect, the living, breathing thing that is a relationship. Thinking of relationships, love this living, breathing thing and your own experience of becoming a parent. Now you have two children. How do you find that relationship with a child is for you same what's same what's different from other relationships in your life Mm, that's a really interesting cool question I like that there's just something about the parent-child connection. I, I'll tell a story. I was just pregnant, like nine weeks pregnant with my first. And we went to see Lady Gaga with all my high school besties in Vegas. They've all had kids much earlier than I did. I was the very last one. And, and so we were sitting and I was looking at pictures of someone's birthday party. And I was like asking her all these questions. And she's like, it's like you create your favorite people in the world. And I couldn't get my head around that. I'm like, even more favorite than my husband? And she was like, yes, Sarah. But at the time, I was like, better, more than my dogs? I couldn't compute. And then the minute they came into my lives, everything, it was suddenly this, this hierarchy was very clear. You know, The dog became the dog. Your poor partners became your partners. But there's just something about this connection, this divine connection of knowing that you are the caretaker of this little being, whether you birth them or not. I have adopted family members and like, it's the same thing. It's just, you know, when you take on that role of primary caregiver of someone that is younger than you, because I, you know, imagine and having taken care of an ill, an ill parent, you know, it's obviously, it's very different, but when they're younger than you and you're taking care of them and you're primary, it's just, they get elevated to this place in your heart, that it's divine. You know, I can't (laughs) 
explain it. They are my favorite people on this planet. But at the same time, they can also push every single button. They have access to all the internal buttons as well. But yeah, it just elevates them to like a different compartment in your brain and a different place in your heart that I never knew existed. Although being like a pet mom, I think you get kind of close. It's definitely otherworldly. What I'm thinking about, though, is that I think it can get dangerous for people because it is otherworldly that we start to invest ourselves into them to the point that there's no separation and it goes back to the boundary thing and, and you know, how it's like you can love them deeply and you can love them unconditionally, but at the same time, you know, still take care of yourself and still have a sense of self. And like mother is obviously, it's a very important piece of my life and they are my favorite human beings on the planet, but it's also still just a piece of who I am as Sarah as a whole. It is the most divine love, but you can easily lose yourself in it if you're not, if you're not careful. And it's important to keep yourself as an anchor so that you actually even have that love to give. Yeah. Again, we're going back to that groundedness, grounded in your own being. And that's how you can be an anchor and then relate from, from the deep place. I know that you have been researching and, and working a lot with understanding past myths of parental hierarchy and how conscious parenting seeks to see children as whole beings who deserve respect. I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it goes right back to the boundary conversation from earlier. It's all very intricately connected. And even though conscious parenting, you know, we do try to see our children as whole beings who deserve respect and autonomy. It doesn't mean that they're getting run of the house. They're not like the kings of the household, you know, my little, my little boys or, you know, queen or, you know, whatever. It's they're not running everything. There are still limits and, and that's still very, very important. And the limit is the boundary, right? Within which that they now have freedom to move around. So, you know, even though conscious parenting is the name and you'll hear gentle parenting and peaceful parenting and, you know, there's many different styles, you can really break them all down into four quadrants. And those quadrants are broken up based on connection and limit setting. So if you have a parenting makeup that is very low connection, but very high limit setting, which is, you know, kind of what we were talking about, the hierarchy, right? You're the child. You do what I say. You know, it doesn't matter. You have no say. You're just seen as, as below. That's the authoritarian style of parenting. And that's kind of what a lot of us grew up in. I'm 41 and in the 80s. And, and I think that's definitely what my parents grew up in. And children were seen but not heard. And it was like your way or the highway. And then the pendulum kind of swung a little bit. Like, and I don't really know the generations exactly, but where there was tons of connection, but very little limit setting. And, you know, that was a little bit more of the kind of the helicopter parent and allowing. And, you know, there are definitely benefits to that as well. That would be called the permissive style of parenting. But the constraints were still needed. They were still finding that there were self-worth issues coming up with the children that were raised in those homes later in life. And risk management you know, and just, you know, even just that frontal lobe, higher decision-making was, was a little slower to develop. So it's finding the middle ground of having high limit setting, but also high connection. 
And again, it's that boundary of having limits, but also the space for them to discover themselves. And that's the authoritative style of parenting. And that's where you would group conscious parenting, gentle parenting, peaceful parenting, all of them are in there. And I do want to mention, because I know people are like, but you said four, there is the fourth category, which is low connection and low limit setting, which unfortunately is sometimes called neglectful parenting. And that's where there really isn't much interaction between the the children and the parents. And, you know, they provide the house, they would provide food and shelter if that. So it is, you know, there is that other end of the spectrum too, which is important to mention. Well, it's interesting because each type of structure, each category, all there are still benefits. So that final category, that's called neglectful parenting. Yes, there are definitely social challenges, attachment challenges, but they actually tend to score the highest as far as like independence and resilience. And, you know, what's the word like when you're like in, ingenuitive, right? Like where you can like, you know, get solve, solve things and plan for things. So there is a beauty to the experience. Mm-hmm. There is there is skills that come out of having to take care of yourself or your siblings, you know. But the thing with authoritative, which is that sweet spot in the middle again, is that because of the limit setting and the high connection, they actually get a lot of those similar skills. You know, they are still scoring high on the resilience scale and on the um, and ingenuity is the word that keeps coming to mind. But, you know, like, I don't know, resourcefulness, resourcefulness, I think is the word that I'm looking for. They still are incredibly resourceful and have that independent side as well as the ability to connect. But the interpersonal relationships, you know, those are all more positive when you have a high connection home. Thank you. Thank you for that and for telling us about this research. Now, I'm looking here at your book, The Yoga of Parenting, and I love that the first part is awareness. I'm wondering if there's anything that in this relationship as mother, you have noticed that your internal dialogue is different or is it the same? I talk a lot about patterns in our internal dialogue, and sometimes we have these patterns that are the same, but the characters or the circumstances are different. Mm. So, for example, we love someone at first. and We really like that person and then they become a good friend and then they say or do something we feel angry about. And then we want to have nothing to do with that person. The same thing happens later with a boss at work Mm. or with someone we're dating or with a coworker. So the way we think about them could be, I love this person. Now this person is so annoying. I don't want to have anything to do with this person. Our internal dialogue could also be, what's going on with me that I can't have a good relationship with a friend, with a coworker. So it could be self-doubt. It could be like something different. Like we make the other bad. Oh, they're, they're just terrible people out there. And see, I can't trust anybody. So even though the characters... Mm. are changing. The internal dialogue is the same. And I'm wondering with parenting, as you're more aware of how you're parenting and how you are communicating with your children, if you've noticed 
anything different or the same in your internal dialogue. I love that. And I, I notice it a lot with my husband and being in partnership of how much I repeat patterns or go through old limiting beliefs that I had as a kid. Um, and it's been very healing for me because as an adult, I can get grounded again and I can be like, okay, I grew up in an alcoholic household. I grew up in the youngest of five kids by like 10 years was the next in age to me. And then 15 years was my eldest brother. It was a happening household. They were teenagers. Everybody was using, there was a lot of in and out and up and down and a lot of explosivity. And, you know, people would sometimes be in a good mood and sometimes not. And so when people were not in a good mood, as a little girl, I would internalize it as, did I do something wrong? And what can I do to fix this situation? And I see it now. I do the same thing with my husband. I don't consider the fact that like his football team lost the day before, or like, you know, he didn't sleep very well. It's like, I automatically go to a place where I feel like I did something wrong and I become that little girl trying to fix everything. And I can see those patterns with my kids. And of course, like, let's keep in mind, you know, they're three and a half is my oldest. So like when they become more grown and they really have those personality differences, when my oldest needs some space or he seems upset with me about something, I do the same thing. I start to circle and I find myself wanting to placate him and wanting to make it all better. And I have a much easier time right now at these ages as toddlers to be able to kind of separate and be like, okay, Sarah, get grounded. You know, this is not happening. You are not the child in this situation. You know, who knows what's going on for him? I I tend to have a lot more permission for them and a lot more wherewithal and awareness, like you said. Um, but that being said, I can only imagine how things are going to develop as they get older and they become teenagers and tweens and adults. And the hope is that I continue to do the personal work so that those feelings will come up and that little girl self will get triggered in the ways that she does. And rather than pushing her down and being like, what's wrong with you? It's like putting her in the corner and being like, deal with it that I can just very lovingly like put my arms around myself and be like, you know what, this isn't about you. It's not personal and let them just be there as a source of love for them in this time that is clearly challenging for the the many, many reasons that it is. Wow. It sounds to me that you're, again, we're coming back to this being aware that This thought is happening in your internal dialogue, the little girl who feels like she did something wrong, and then bringing yourself back to staying grounded and looking around and saying, this is not your fault. It has nothing to do with you. And then having that sense of self-connection. And as your book says in the subtitle, and being kind to yourself, that that's such a beautiful practice of bringing that kindness back into yourself. And I imagine that then that brings you back into connection with your kids. You see things from a different perspective. It is. It's about, you know, how remembering that there is a, we talk in yoga about like the seer, you know, there is a, there is a more wise place within us, um, a more divine place within us that kind of holding space for all of these things and being able to sit back into that. I love that you talk so much about yoga. That's just not the, the title of your book or that you don't just offer asanas, yoga postures for people who may not know what asanas are in your book. 
or, or poses, but that you also write about Ayurveda and yoga philosophy. How has yoga contributed to your parenting? Oh, I mean, I, <laughs> it's the only reason I'm standing right now. <laughs> Literally, and I'm not standing. I'm sitting. I am very much sitting and slouched. For the people that are going to be listening to this later, I actually, I was so happy that we weren't going to be on video because I'm so tired. I mean, you know, the asana of it all is important because there is a really physical side to early motherhood. If you're the caring person, if you're the caring, I don't want to say partner because that implies that people have a partner. There's like terms, non-birthing, birthing partner. But if you're someone who carries the child within your body, there's that's really physical. Like there is an like amazingly physical aspect to pregnancy. And of course, birth, I mean, that's its own thing. Now, not everybody has that, right? A lot of people, kids come in through many different means, but even just holding young children, whatever age they come in at, when they are younger, the amount of gear that you're carrying around, holding them, chasing them, you know, it's an extremely physical, physical task. So the asana of it all helps me literally lift my child or breastfeed for long term and to be able to do the physical things. But the meditation quality of it, the deeper aspects, the remembering that this is just one aspect of my life and one season. And it really helps me treat everything as the privilege that it is. It reminds me of the temporality of life and these moments and and it, it it helps me get through it in that way because in the yogic system we believe that there is a fabric that is all omnipresent and always happening and we'll talk about it as the big s seer it is like that like kind of you know the divine tapestry but then there's the nature and the changing and the living in human form which is the blessing and the most amazing thing but if we can remember that it is meant to be fleeting then not only do we treat everything with a little bit more of that privilege and, and respect, but it's also really helpful in those like late nights and, you know, when you are chasing someone and you're exhausted. Um, so, you know, all those, all those qualities, I think really help. And that's all the yoga there. I mean, 1000% yoga informs everything I do, but especially my parenting. I have two more questions, if that's okay with you. Of course. One is that in the second part of the book that you devote to transformation, in chapter five, which is titled When Challenges Become a Gift, you offer your readers what I found to be a beautiful exercise to change the language and shift the context and find a gift in what has been believed to be a challenge in our lives. So I can give you some examples. So the challenge growing up with alcoholics, the gift, reading people's energy and needs, or the challenge, four-month sleep regression, and the gift, babies, expanded awareness, ability to connect more deeply. Can you walk our readers a little bit through that exercise? What can they do when they find themselves hitting against that challenge that they've seen again and again in their lives? How can they transform that and see the essence that in that challenge, there was a gift? I think the first step is to acknowledge where in the transformation process that you are. So one of the things that I refer to in the book is the process of, you know, the caterpillar becoming the butterfly, because 
there is a moment in challenge where nothing makes sense and you are deeply, deeply in it. And, you know, much like the caterpillar has to literally dissolve from its inside out to then later reform to become the butterfly, that's not really the time to try to be sifting through to find the gifts. That's the time when you just need to be in it. So I think that the first step is the awareness. That's why that's always chapter one, right? Is like get grounded, see where you are. And if you are deep in it in the, in the moment, you don't need to be looking for a silver lining in, in that moment. You know, that's, that's what we call a spiritual bypassing, talks of positivity. So if someone's hearing this and you are deeply, deeply in it right now, you are in it. So, so be in it <laughs> and that's okay. But when you start to get to the other side, and you have that first moment to breathe. And when you start to feel the shift and the change, you know, and maybe you're not fully aware of what those things are, that's when in retrospect, you can start to see, oh, wow, like there was actually some bounty from this experience. So the exercise is to look back either over your lifetime or over your lifetime as a parent or in a- any relationship you can do from start to finish, whether it's a job or a partnership, thing, looking over it, the history of it to see those moments that felt like pure fire and, and like you were going to get burned and you were you know terrified to get through it, but that you actually came out on the other side even shinier and more beautiful. I mean, internally, obviously, right? But you are even more awakened and connected and whatever the adjectives are, because it's so personal to you. But that is the exercise is the idea that in retrospect, when we look at the life of something, the life cycle of a relationship or an experience and those hiccups, those moments that seemed like maybe they were some of the hardest parts of it can also then bring us some beautiful, beautiful blessings on the other side. Thank you so much for bringing that awareness again of when Just like in Ayurveda, in one period of your time, something that you consume could be medicine. In another period of time, something you consume could be poison and vice versa. And to remind ourselves that when we have these practices and these tools, that there's a context in which that can be medicine and can be appropriate. Another context when it can become spiritual bypassing or toxic positivity. Thank you so much. All right. My last question is, is there any message or specific language that has helped you stay grounded, connect with your kids, or be kind to yourself that someone else said to you? Ooh, that someone else said, because I was like, oh, I got my favorite mantra that I was going to share, but that someone else said to me. I mean, I feel like there's so many wise things that people have said and you like hang on to everything. I will have to refer to one of my favorite authors, Hunter Clark Fields, who wrote Raising Good Humans. And she has the Mindful Mama podcast. The thing that she wrote was that, you know, it's much easier to meditate when you're alone in a cave somewhere. But, you know, imagine doing so when when you have a kid that that's like really the ultimate spiritual practice. And that's not her exact quote. Uh, You know, I have to get her book to get her exact quote, but that was the gist of it was like, it's much easier to be yogic. And, you know, we talked about that, like being grounded when you're alone in your house and you're doing your practice and the music's on and the heat is the right, you know, temperature and all those things. But like that, that is the, the practice. The practice is 
how are we using these tools and how are we finding that connection amidst all the madness that is life that, you know, that is the ups and downs and the temporality of it all. But Hunter Clark Fields, she's phenomenal. Thank you so much. Sarah, how do people find you? Instagram is probably the place that I'm most active. I'm also on TikTok, but you can find me on my website, sarahesrednyoga.com. I love to hear from people. I'm going to be starting my, I don't know when we're going to air this, but my book tour will be starting in June, 2023. And I'll be in a bunch of different cities all around uh, the West coast and the East coast. Um, So you can look up online. I would love to see people in person. And, you know, I just love connecting and hearing stories. I'm usually on the other side of the mic. So it's like, my favorite thing is to ask everyone all the questions. So please send me all your stories. And yeah, it's just, I'm just so grateful to be here. And thank you so much for having me. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. And I'm going to be at one of your events. I'm looking forward to that. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. And a special thanks to all the parents who are listening right now and who, like Sarah, are constantly exploring how to be the conscious communication teachers for their children and leaving a communication legacy of love, compassion, equity, and authenticity. Until next week, and as we say in Argentina, ciao, ciao. (laughs) Ciao, ciao. Original music by Gary LePoe. You can find all links in the show notes at languagealchemy.com.